If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to the Lord. Father, once again, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together to worship you. Father, as we focus on you this morning, as we have expressed our love and our devotion to you, as we have desired, Father, to lift your name through singing, through the reading of your word, through prayer, magnifying who you are and that you are the one we've come to honor, Lord, we also desire to hear from you. And Father, we know that to hear from you, we need to open your word, we need to read what it says and listen to what the scripture teaches us. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would enable us, Father, to hear your word as we continue through the sermon that Jesus preached. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity that we have. We do ask for your blessing. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus said that you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Once again, just to remind you, because it's been several weeks since we've... uh, been dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, Jesus is giving us basically six different examples of the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, he had said that unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, they would not enter the kingdom of God. So he's trying to show them that the rabbinic interpretation or the normal rabbinic interpretation of the law significantly reduced the standard that was intended by God. And so he is calling his disciples to pursue the righteousness that God intended. So when you hear this phrase or come across this phrase where he says, you've heard that it was said, uh, that that phrase is not just a way of saying, here is what Moses uh, or the law of Moses states. It's a rabbinic phrase where they would say, we have heard it said, and it means you have received by tradition. So Jesus was referring to the interpretation of the law when he makes that statement that they had received from the rabbis or the scribes. So what is Jesus doing? He is choosing a Mosaic command. This one is very clear what we're talking about. He's talking about the command against adultery. And he's contrasting it with the Pharisaic interpretation of the commandment through the oral law. And he's focusing on the righteousness of the law. This righteousness not only required an external conformity, but also an internal conformity. So it's not just the act, but also the intent of the heart. So it is the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. So we want to keep that in mind as we continue to work our way through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So again, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now again, remember, he's speaking to a group of individuals who are very religious. They are faithful in reading the Old Testament, what they have. They are faithful in going to the synagogue. Uh, They've all been raised pretty much in the same way. They're very familiar with all the teaching uh, that goes along with with the commandments and and how they are to be understood. And so what Jesus 
in one sense, is assuming here that they already know is what the rabbis said uh, about what constituted adultery. The problem with that is that it kind of depended on where you went to school or who your rabbi was. Because there was, there was one group that said, well, a man did not commit adultery by having sexual relations with a single woman since adultery was defined as having sexual relations with a neighbor's wife. And so once again, they're trying to, to alter or change uh, maybe what they're really trying to do is trying to find a way to get by uh, the law themselves. How, how can I break the law but still appear to be righteous? So let's just change the definition. Uh, we see that going on today all the time when it comes to various debates on moral issues. Whether it's within the church, within religious bodies, or in society, uh, we, we all should understand that the one who controls the language the one who controls how words are defined is going to control how the masses understand certain topics or how they're going to view things. Uh, and so that's why we make such a big deal about words. It's not just Christians who do that. Everyone does that. It makes a real big deal uh, about, about words. The other, uh, one of the other views was that there are various forms of sexual activity between a man and a woman uh, who are married but not married to each other uh, but none of that would amount to an adulterous act if it did not involve copulation. So there they were kind of giving them free reign to engage in all kind of physical activity, but as long as the one thing didn't happen, it's not adultery. Then you had the last group, which basically was, no, man's guilty of adultery if he kissed or had lustful thoughts about a married woman. So there was a group um, that would immediately have agreed with Jesus. That they, they had already were teaching, they were, there was that remnant that understood that the righteousness of the law was not just dealing with the act, that is dealing with an external and an internal aspect of righteousness. Now, even though we understand that intellectually, and even though we, we, we may say that, oh yeah, that's, you know, we may say we're in agreement with that, I, I do think that oftentimes we're guilty of the same thing. We, you know, we, we do want to appear moral and righteous. There is an internal life, our minds, our heart. There are moments, there are times, there may be long moments where if our hearts were revealed, if our minds were revealed, we would, we would carry a great deal of shame because of the immorality that lies deep within us. An immorality that may be expressed internally, maybe more often than we'd even like to even admit to ourselves. But this is the arena that God is addressing. He's not ignoring the outward aspects. Obviously, that's important. This is not a way of saying, well, since you're immoral internally, you just might as well go ahead and be immoral externally. That's, that's, not, that's not the logic that's being followed here. The idea is, yeah, it's good that you are moral externally. You need to pay attention to what's going on internally, and that needs to be addressed. Because that is the righteousness that God requires from you. Exodus 20, verse 14 says simply, you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. But that seventh commandment was to be interpreted in light of the tenth commandment. You see, the ten commandments still represent just one standard. It's just there are ten connected parts. They're not unrelated to each other. What's the tenth commandment? Verse 17 of Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. 
So you take all the other laws that he's, all these other commands about, you know, uh, not stealing and, and not uh, committing adultery, and you bring in to bear this commandment, you realize that it's both external and internal. It was always there. It's just there are those who just chose to ignore that aspect. They weren't thinking in that way. So Jesus' statement then in verse 28, when he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, which is about lusting for a woman. He uses the vocabulary and the grammar of Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. What he's simply saying is he, he wants to make this connection clear. Locking eyes on a woman with the intention of stirring sexual desire for her constituted an act of adultery in the heart. So what we need to understand what that means when we say it constitutes the act of adultery in the heart. So what he is saying then is that you are being guilty of adultery. Okay, you are an, you are an adulterer. All right, so, so no, that doesn't mean we go ahead and commit adultery. It doesn't mean that. But the way that God views that, he's not viewing this as a lesser sin. One has greater consequences, but both are extremely unrighteous before the eyes of God. So if you are one who's only thought about it, you are not better than the one who acts on it. In one sense, when it comes to the lack of purity in your life, there's no difference. We want to desperately point out the difference. We think there should be some merit that we gain by not following through. And I guess we could say to one degree, when it again comes to consequences, there is, but, but there isn't. In the final measure of things, there's not. And then what Jesus does to make this clear is he then gives what is considered by many some very difficult words. What does he say? If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then he says it again in a different way. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Go into hell. Now these verses have been interpreted in many different ways. Some have concluded that he is calling for the dismemberment of the body in order to conquer sinful longings. Now, if you are a teenage boy, there's a question you want to ask me. Bob, you ever know anyone who's gouged out their eye? Because that's how teenage boys think. I have. I didn't see it happen, thank goodness. But it was uh, in the prison uh, on the island, on, in Oahu where I was the chaplain. And we had a guy who uh, was reading through the New Testament, and he read that, and so he ripped out his eye. I don't know how painful that must have been. The amazing thing is, they were, thing is they were able to actually put it back in. The doctors, it wasn't like they just slapped it in. But they were able to save the eye. He, so he has, well, then he had eyesight. I, I don't think his eye worked as well as it did before. But he was able to see out of that eye, at least in some way. So yes, uh, sometimes we think, oh, there's just no way anybody would. Well, there have been. Uh, now, I will say that for him, uh, he was one of those individuals where we would say the elevator doesn't always go to the top floor. And so he did have some issues, but uh, those aren't the only kind of individuals who will resort to such things. There is a religious zealotry that is out there uh, in very, uh, very many different places around the world where these types of things are done. In fact, there was a guy in history called Origen, 
and he castrated himself. And the reason why he did that was because he wanted to battle lust. He was, a, he was an intelligent man. I know that doesn't sound intelligent, but he was an intelligent man. And he later wrote about that, that he really regretted this drastic measure because he said it did nothing to help him combat temptation. Did not help. Others have said that the statement is metaphorical to the degree that they would say this, the eye and the hand represent different members of the body of Christ, the church, who may have to be cut off in the process of church discipline if their sinfulness threatens to corrupt the church. Well, I mean, in a sense, there's a true statement there. There is a place for these, for these things in church discipline, but that is not what Jesus is talking about. He is not talking about the church and church discipline. He's talking about you and me as individuals. Because what we need to recognize is that there's a clear connection between the eye in verse 29 and the lustful look in verse 28. So the best interpretation of this passage is this. It notices that Jesus begins with a condition. He says, if your right eye. So I hadn't thought of it this way before. I came across this as I was studying, and one individual said this. This statement, if your right eye causes you to sin, assumes a reality that is false. It assumes a condition for the sake of making a point. Because the hand and the eye does not cause a person to sin. We don't believe that. If I'm having an argument with Robert, you know how this goes. Robert's in the front row, so this is how it goes. So I'm having an argument with Robert, and I smack him with my hand. What I don't say is, I just can't seem to control my hand. I have no idea. what. Sometimes I just, I don't know what it's going to do. And if I was to say that, Robert would say, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. But the thing is, is that what we know is the actions of my hand are what? Connected to what? My heart. Right? I mean, that's what we know. So this whole idea that some body part can cause you to sin, that's not true. That's not true. So he is making a statement that is false, but he's seeking to make a point. Jesus is pointing out that the sin of adultery is spawned in the heart. In fact, Jesus will say as much later. Chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus will say, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So that's how we know the condition of a person's heart is by the way they behave. That's the bottom line. People say, oh, you can't read another person's heart. Well, yeah, you can I may not be able to read all of it, all right? Because people say, well, you know, deep inside, they're a good person. No, no, they're not. Number one, the Bible says they're not. Number two, their actions betray that. If I do slap Robert because we have an argument, which I, would, I think I would never do that. I know I've never done that. And if you don't believe me, you can ask him. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that if I was, that shows you something's wrong here. In fact, if... The church was to hear that Robert and I had an argument and that I slapped him. Nobody here would think, well, you know how it is. It's, we all have a hard time controlling our hands. Nobody would jump to my defense saying that. The first thing people are going to be thinking is, something's wrong somewhere. So, and we, what they mean by that is, not that there's something wrong with the atmosphere, but there's something wrong with Bob. Well, why would he do that? That doesn't make sense. That goes against everything that he says he knows and believes. 
think he, and he appears to be controlled most of the time. What's going on? And so we immediately begin to associate what my hand did with who? With me. And that's what he's doing here. So we can never blame our body parts, which also then means we can never blame our circumstances. That goes hand in hand. No matter what the circumstance, the bottom line is, I'm still responsible for what I do in that circumstance. It may feel overwhelming, but the bottom line is I'm still responsible. We may say, anybody in your position would do that. Even if that's true, you're still responsible for the wrong you do. That's one of the things that's consistent with the scripture. No matter what's going on in the life of any individual, the Bible never offers as an excuse overwhelming circumstances. It never does that. It never allows us to think that someone else is to blame. We do know from both the Bible and experience that there may be other influences in our lives that affect us negatively. But ultimately, in the end, no matter how greatly I'm influenced, those influences never cause me to do anything. That's a condition from the heart. My heart may be influenced in the ways of evil by others, but that's because my heart is already evil to begin with and why it is so easily led in that direction. So again, the bottom line with all of that is that we are always personally held 100% responsible for what we do, for what we say, for what we think. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that he wants to clearly define what is adultery. He is focusing on the inner righteousness that God is demanding. And he is stripping away the excuses and letting him know by this statement about cutting out the eye and cutting off the right hand. That we need to take this so seriously, there must in a sense be a willingness, if it was going to be helpful, to remove those things from our body. It's if. Those, those things, it won't be helpful to do that. But this makes it clear, I believe, what the attitude should be. The point that Jesus is making is that sexual purity is so important that one should be willing to sacrifice the most important limbs of the body. And we live in a society that when it comes to sexual purity, that, that is a, a laughing matter. That is something the world mocks at, thinks that it's foolishness for anyone to pursue or to think about sexual purity. Conquering sexual sin will ultimately depend on whether one is pure at heart. Like we can take all of the external <coughs> disciplines, we can, we can put on ourselves all the external handcuffs, so to speak, to try to prevent us from sinning in this way. But we're never going to be able to conquer it until we have a pure heart. What did Jesus say? Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart is granted by Jesus. A lifestyle of sexual sin leads to spiritual downfall and ultimately to eternal punishment. Any sacrifice to pursue sexual purity is wise and prudent. That's the basic truth that's here. The reason why that's being stated here in this way, and I think we see this, we do see in the Old Testament, we see a lot of the stories about this in the Old Testament. We see a lot of statements about this in the New Testament. There's a great deal in the Bible about sex. I know we get kind of weird about that, and we don't like to talk about it too much, and it makes us uncomfortable, and it makes it kind of awkward and whatnot, but, you know, the society we live in, we, we need to swallow our awkwardness for the sake of ourselves, our friends, and our children. We have to, we have to do that. 
We, it is forced uh, on us in that sense. It shouldn't be forced on us because we should have these discussions at home anyway. Uh, but, but we're at a point to where uh, we, we can no longer allow ourselves to be shy about these things. We need to understand that sex is never just sex. It is much more significant than we normally think because it's not just the physical act. Sexual sin is always against God. It is against yourself. It is against your body. And it is also against your identity. If giving yourself in sex is not done in the context of a lifelong commitment, the result is going to be deep pain. It messes with you in a profound way. And if you don't think that sex has anything to do with what's going on in our country today, if you pay any attention to the headlines and the various movements and, and things that people are discussing and maybe even getting angry about, it is all about that. It is all about sex in, in the broadest way possible. And what is accompanying that? A, a, a growing confusion about identity, who we are, our purpose in life, what we're trying to accomplish, what we should be trying to accomplish, the way we treat people, the way people feel. It goes on and on. Sex is powerful and it is life-changing. That we often don't think that sex is not powerful and life-changing is a result of you and I being conformed to the world. It's a big deal. Now, that doesn't make sex nasty. It doesn't make it dirty. Right? We, don't, we can't go there. That's wrong for us to do that. In fact, if you want your kids to rebel against you big time, then you should have the attitude that sex is dirty. That you're just, just going to have a problem. Right? We, we need to be able to discuss, again, what it is. It, is, it was created by God in the beginning before man sinned, what did God say about all of creation? He said it was all good. That's what he said. And we need to approach life that way. Modern culture has redefined sexuality as a personal right to be exercised any way an individual wishes. And we sometimes, we don't really mean to, but maybe we do so. Maybe it's out of fear. Maybe it's out of trying to be polite. Maybe it's because we don't want a confrontation or an argument. But when someone says, well, you know, I've just always, you know, the guy says, I've just always had these strong feelings for another guy. And what we end up doing, especially if they're related to us, is somehow say, well, you know, as long as you, as long as you really love them, you know, or as long as you keep it to yourself, of course, we, we may not say it that way, but that's the implication. But the idea is, is we don't want to go into a discussion about it. Just kind of, just kind of let it go. You know, don't throw it in my face, and I won't throw it in your face. And I'm not saying that we should throw it in people's faces, but we, we don't want to verbalize a stand because we already know what that's going to mean. Because we live in a time where it's no, it used to be, for the most part, that if an individual declared themselves to be a homosexual or what have you, as long as we said, hey, look, whatever your deal is, as long as you're not praying it out front, whatever, and you, you know, whatever, then look, I'm okay with it. That's what we used to do. And that used to be enough. Others go, okay, you're good then. But now it's not enough. Now it's no, 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 no. You, you can't take that attitude. You have to be happy for me. You, you have to celebrate with me whatever my identity is or my practices are. So when we then take a stand on what the scripture says, about what is right, what is wrong. And you don't have to do it in a mean way. You don't have to yell. But we don't want to take a stand. 
Because then that puts the focus back on us. And people might yell at us. They're going to call us names. You know, you're going to be homophobic. You're going to be this. You're going to be bigoted. It just goes on and on. And it can be relentless. And we see it happening uh, to many individuals. And we see it going on. It's, it's in the news. It's all over Instagram and Facebook and all that social media stuff. It's all over the place. And it takes place. Speakers who go in to speak on college campuses sometimes are yelled down over these kinds of issues. And these are the kinds of things that are said. And so on a smaller scale, we, just, we don't want to go there. I don't want to, because I don't want to deal with that. I don't about you, but I don't want to deal with that either. But we, we cannot allow this, allow others to think that somehow, in some way, we are at least condoning it a little bit. We can't do that. Why? Because the Bible has made it pretty clear, sex is a big deal. It's a big deal. And it affects individuals psychologically and physically and spiritually. It's at the same time also revealing what's going on psychologically and spiritually. It does both those things. And we need to be aware of that. Sexual behavior is considered a personal choice akin to a decision to whether buy a house or rent a condo. At the same time, popular opinion has all but removed the word, the word sin from our culture's vocabulary. The only sexual expression considered wrong is what is deemed distasteful to the one who's making the definition. And of course, basically nowadays we're at a time when there are, there is, there are no bars, there's, there are no limits, so to speak. There, there's always one, you know, that's with adults, with children. But just so you know, there's been efforts by many groups for decades trying to change that. And they've done so without shame, and they've not done it in secret. You know, there's a push there's always been a push to lower what they call age of consent. And it continues, as you may, hopefully you're aware of this, that they no, longer, uh, can, they, they no longer want individuals to use the term pedophile. Uh, I think it's you have a, a, a minor attraction, or a, you're attracted to minors. They, they make it sound more psychological, like a psychological label, so that we don't think bad of the individual. And I've seen individuals actually say that. That's why they, they don't want to use the term pedophile. Why is that happening? It's because there's a consensus among many. It's, because, it's not a conspiracy. It's that all these individuals have the same worldview. And even though their worldview may not be the same in every case, it always begins with what? A rebellion against God and what God has said and, this, and the absolutes that God has given. And so when it comes to these things, we must take all these things really very seriously. What Jesus is teaching and what the Bible is teaching touches on a lot of areas of life as it relates to sexual relations, dating, married life, social norms, and behavior, and so on. So as I've already said, sex is not dirty. Sex in and of itself is not sinful. But when it comes to this arena of adultery and reasons people give as to why adultery has been committed. So before I go on, let me just again remind you that whatever reason a person may give for committing adultery, it does not absolve them of the responsibility of the wrong they've done. Okay? If they, even if they point out how their partner has sinned against them, that may be true, but that does not justify what they've done. Period. It, 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 there's no, it does not bring understanding in the sense of somehow, well, Okay, well, I can understand why you, why you didn't know. We cannot understand because 
we are to be loyal to Christ first. That will never contradict you being loyal to your marriage vows. Right? But our loyalty is to Christ first. We, we want to remain faithful to our spouses because of Christ. That's what is supposed to drive us in life. You, you want to you raise your children correctly because of Christ, because of what he said. It's not just because you want your kids to have a good life. It's not, a, it's not wrong for you want your kids to have a good life. There's nothing wrong with that. But we want to do so because, and we're committed to that because we're committed to Christ. That's the idea. That's behind all that. So that when it comes to that arena, to not engage in sexual relations is also, for those who are married, is sinful. It does matter what you do sexually to God. In marriage, outside of marriage, it matters to God. That's all there is to it. It matters to God. It's huge. It, has a, it does and has a profound impact on many areas of your life, including your relationship with God. Although you and I, again, cannot cause anyone to sin, we can have a big part in it. So a lack of intimacy in marriage is not the sole cause of infidelity. It is, at times, maybe often, a major contributor. We could go on and on, but we have adopted, uh, but we won't, so I know you're all going to sigh of relief now. Uh, we have adopted the views of the world when it comes to this. Like the world, we view sexuality as a personal right, and we may express that in different ways. And so we believe then that when it comes to the relationship we have with our spouse and our marriage, that it's private only between us. Now, in one sense, that's true. They don't need to advertise that to others. But it is not off limits to God. We need to follow what he says. We don't go around and engage in sexual activity with several people. So we don't express it that way, our rebellion against God. What we may do is we don't engage in sexual activity at all in our married lives. That's rebellion against God. That's what that is. Now I know it can get very complicated when it comes to that, when it comes to that issue in marriage, outside of marriage. But if you think about it, it really is supposed to be complicated. It's supposed to be complicated. It's supposed to be hard and awkward because it is intimate. It is powerful. It is life-changing. It is life-altering. It is psychologically painful. It is psychologically awkward. And it's also psychologically fulfilling. But it starts with two things. This is the heart of what Jesus is saying here. It, to do all these things right starts with a pure heart. And that starts with Christ. And so maybe a, a prayer that would be good for you for this year is to ask God to help us to love purity and to love righteousness. Because that affects what we, what we are uh, motivated to seek after. If, if we, because we, we're usually very disciplined when it comes to what we love. And so, I need to love a pure heart. Now, I would love everyone to have a pure heart, but I need to love me having a pure heart. And I need to love righteousness. But this pure heart is not by itself. It is a pure heart that is submitted to the Word of God. But when you think of the Word of God, think of it this way. It is a pure heart that is submitted to the words of God. So the Word of God is not some abstract idea where there's just, you know, we have a Bible and we have a spotlight on, on a shelf because we honor it. No, it's the words of God. What has he said? We recognize that there are several behaviors that one can engage in that may reveal whether one truly knows the Lord. 
And I do believe this is possible, maybe more so than we would like to think, that our engagement or our lack of engagement in sexual activity does the exact same thing. It may reveal whether we really know the Lord or not. So when it comes to the statement of Jesus, he specifically brings up these areas that he wants to point out to the people when he wants to explain to them the righteousness that God is looking for, this internal righteousness. These are not six random things. These are things that he knows is important and at the forefront in the lives and minds of the people that he's talking to. It's at the forefront of these people in, in that culture, in that society at that time. Just so happens that they happen to be the same thing today. And so we need to take a look at this. So even though we may think, well, you know, I know I, I don't commit adultery and I've, I've never thought about it. That, that's great. That's awesome. And I've never lusted after anybody else. That's terrific. But you need to look at the entire area of, I guess you would say, sex in your life and how it relates to what the scripture says, especially if you're married. If you're, if you're not married, it's really simple. It's always just no. We just kind of go on with life, all right? And, uh, and what we need to recognize, because this is important, and this will come out again later, because Christ is going to bring up sex again in Matthew, all right? Because some people will say these things that are against scripture. You know, there's a young couple, and they want to get married. And, you know, they have this passion for each other. And sometimes people say, well, that's not a reason, good enough reason to get married. Uh, yes, it is. It's in the Bible. Very clearly in the Bible. He says in Corinthians, it's better to marry than the bird. There's no way to get around that. And then he also describes in the Bible, in Matthew, that has to be in 1 Corinthians as well. Paul is getting down into it. And he talks about men and women in their married lives. And what, he, what does he say? Uh, you, should, you should never deny each other. There's only one exception. And that's prayer and fasting. And then he says, then he gives some rules. Number one, that should always be for a short time. And then he says why? Because of sexual immorality. He recognizes it's, it's a powerful arena of temptation. It is strong. And if you think for a minute... You're strong enough on your own to resist that. You're gravely mistaken. Because as we've just already seen, it's not just about maybe the individual engaging in all kinds of sexual activity. It's not just that individual. It's also the other one who may be married and never engages in it. We've got some problems. There's a selfishness that is there. That's a rebellion against God. And so we need to take a look at these things and ask God to help us, but it, we need to go back to the beginning. This is not like a self-help book, and these are the ten things you can do. No, 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 no. We need, we need to deal with the foundation first. And what's the foundation? Up your heart and submit to the Word of God. And if we do that, then we'll be open to the wisdom that God gives us in His Word on how to address these issues so we can be spared the psychological pain and hurt and awkwardness and all the other things that go with it, all the negative things that accompany sexual problems. And we can be free from that, both as single individuals as well as those that are married. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and kindness and goodness. And we thank you, Father, for the forthrightness of Christ and his willingness to address difficult issues, at least issues that can be difficult for us because uh, they're just hard for us and, and there's an awkwardness. But we thank you, Lord, that we're not left 
in the dark. We pray, Lord, that for all of us here, because regardless of where we are in our lives, Father, we need to desire, we need to long for a pure heart. And for those of us who are believers, we know that Christ has cleansed us from the power of sin. But we need the grace of Christ to pursue that. We ask that you would give it to us. Father, for those who don't know Christ, there is nothing they can do to get a pure heart. There are, there are no sanctions that they can uh, bring against themselves that will enable them to have a pure heart. There's no way they can cleanse themselves. I pray, Lord, they would help them to recognize that they are helpless in the face of all temptation, but especially in this one area. And I ask, Lord, they would recognize that we need to come to Christ because our lack of a pure heart begins because we're separated from God. And as a result of that, Father, we then easily remain in less than desirable circumstances and find ourselves very comfortable in a sense in mixed company. So Father, I ask that you would help each one here this morning who doesn't know Christ to come to the realization of their need of Christ and forgiveness of sin. They would believe in Christ, believe in who he is and what he's done and accept, Father, the great gift of salvation. Help us, Father, to live by your word. Help us to pray for each other we will pray that we long for a pure heart. Thank you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.